Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter, ideas shape markets, ideas change the world. One of, um, one of the most important journeys that anyone can take is to create something. And uh, I love talking to people who are the creators of marketplaces, creators of companies, and Quite frankly, when you dig into their personal lives too, they have a way of creating their forces of nature that create and make things happen in their personal lives as well. And uh, I experienced uh, a gentleman at one of our physical great conversation forums uh, who at the time was the CEO of Shooter Detection Systems, an innovative new approach to um, uh, the mitigation of active shooters uh, on campuses and throughout the industry. And, um, and so I got to know Christian Connors and Christian Connors, uh, I have been following ever since, you might say stalking him. And the other day I saw that he had headed toward Ukraine. And uh, so I wanted to catch up with Christian Connors, one, uh, to get his ideas on what has happened since shooter detection systems, but more importantly, how he's taken his own force of nature and uh, and and ended up in uh, Poland and on the border of Ukraine. Christian, welcome to the great conversation. I appreciate having me, Ron. I uh, I, I let's just dig in. Um, you're heading back to the border tomorrow. Tomorrow it is. Yep, taking an overnight flight, and we'll uh, be back at work on uh, on Monday morning in Medica, which is on the border of Ukraine. And by the way, everybody, it's May twenty uh, seventh, twenty twenty two. In case this podcast is published later, and uh, so it's Friday, and he's leaving on Saturday. Tell me what happened to you. What what sparked you to go to the Polish border? Um, years ago, I used to actually work on oil tankers and cruise ships, so I had some Ukrainian friends. Uh, kept in touch over the years with a few, and then basically, uh, when I was growing up and still in kind of a World War II buff, and just watching old women with two bags over their shoulders um, walking 30, 40 miles or hundreds of miles, um, it just reminded me of that, and, and I said, well... Um, I have to do something, and certainly, and people have been doing it in, in droves, including our government. There's money you can send, but I just couldn't. I couldn't sit here and just watch it, thinking down the road in 30 years that I could have done something. When I'm seeing a History Channel um, show about this, um, after watching the World War II stuff, so uh, a friend of mine called me up, and we've been talking about it a little bit, and. He had decided World Central Kitchen um, was the place. I didn't want to go and not work. Um, and so they have a great reputation and 12-hour shifts. And we just literally booked the flight that night and told our wives the next morning and, uh, and left. Oh, my goodness. Now, tell me, just give me a little backdrop on World Central Kitchen. How did you find them and, and why are they an important organization when it comes to this? Um, so World Central Kitchen has been around for a while. Jose Andreas is now, I think, a worldwide figure. Um, not that he wasn't before this war, but um, presidents meet him. Ron Howard just did a, a piece on him. Um, but my friend, actually, Cesar Archia, who's a judge here in Massachusetts, but been my friend for 30 years, he was the one who introduced me to them and, uh, and said they were the right organization to go join. So they've actually you know, they're huge now. I mean, I think the government gave him $100 million. Um, Bill Gates Foundation gave him $100 million. And 
he's on TV every night, so it's it's amazing. His new thing isn't just to feed Ukrainians and, and people after uh, catastrophes, which is really what they've been doing, including here in the United States, Texas, and places. He just decided and announced a month ago he's going to feed the world. So he's a visionary and someone type of person you want to follow and see if you can help a little bit. Well, I can't think of anything. that That's really interesting. He starts with a disaster, if you will. People who are under an incredible amount of stress in their lives, and one of them is food deprivation, and now he's moving to feeding the world. I wonder, uh, we're going to have to have him on, if possible, in the great conversation. I'd love to see what that vision looks like and how it would unfold. Can you give us any uh, broad sketch on that? Um, so basically, what he says is there's resources, but it's a lack of drive, bureaucracy, um, there's funds, there's enough food certainly in the world to feed people. And I think he was on Stephen Colbert the other night and basically announced what he was doing. He said, so if it's successful within you know hours of the Russians leaving, he's feeding people in the Ukraine and, and, and around the world, by the way. He said, well, if it's working and we have these amazing volunteer uh, people who are willing to help, local farmers, local restaurant people. He just is a force of nature. He goes in, sets it up, and starts feeding thousands of people within days. And he said, it's really not that hard for him, so he should keep doing it. That's what he said. Well, you know, it's classic entrepreneurship. So that's how we opened up the great conversation, right? Somebody sees a need and sees that there's a more efficient means to satisfy that need. And, and somehow he's been able to pull it together. That's amazing. Yeah, no, I, I, we were hoping to meet him. He was uh, in about 100 kilometers away in Lviv. We thought he was coming because there was a documentary being done while I was there, and uh, but he didn't. But he's one of the few people in the world. I'm not much of a stargazer, but I would love to meet him someday. So uh, I, I just love the grimy details. It reminds me of my father always wanting to say, Ron, you know, you just went to Greece, uh, but let's start with the airport. You know, what'd you experience? He, he would get into these details and I would just laugh. <laughs> but uh, give me the details. You, you actually just said, I did not know this. You actually just said, we booked everything and then told our wives in the morning. Did I hear that right? That is correct. <laughs> now, I don't know if I could get away with that. How'd you get away with that? Well, the door was open when I came back. So she picked me up at the airport, so I thought I might be okay. Well, it's so funny because when I turned to Sally and I said, I'm stalking this guy named Christian Connors, and he just went to Ukraine, and I told him I want to go, and she goes, you're not going. <laughs> <laughs> well, better to ask for forgiveness than uh, permission is always the, uh, the key, and we've been married 26 years. I think she's kind of used to me doing kind of things like that. So tell me, tell me what that looked like. Uh, you just put a rucksack together and off you go. I mean, what, what, tell me what that looked like. I uh, had no idea. What, wasn't sure what we were going to actually be doing. Um, the weather was all over the place. So I, I packed pretty light usually, but I brought, I think, 56 pounds or something and tried to bring some, some things with me for, for the people. Couldn't bring a lot. Um, but yeah, we didn't really think much. We just did it. And I overpacked. We really, really didn't need a lot of that stuff. And um, we took Lufthansa, which was a fantastic experience. And got to the got to uh the place and the airport was closed no cars um it's not hertz over there there it's a little airport uh that the president of the united states i guess had just landed at uh, the day before us so we had patriot missile batteries all over the place and when we landed which kind of reminded us that this wasn't a joke um but yeah it was it was a it's a poland is an absolutely beautiful country i had not been there um, and we, it's, it's just incredible, but it's not where the border is. It's not a city. So, um, yeah, the resources are kind of a little bit scarce and, uh, we got lucky. We found two Americans who had been driving around for a hundred miles to find a rental car and they told us where to go to get one. So that was the start. Um, but it, we stayed in Jamel, which is a beautiful city. It, we, I don't want to make it sound like we were roughing it. Uh, that trip, we stayed in a four-star hotel, 
Polish hotels are pretty inexpensive. People, they were fantastic. And then we would drive an hour and a half, an hour and 40 minutes, you know, get up at five and get home around, you know, midnight and um, do it again. And that's, that was the routine. Oh, I see. So you, you, you commuted two hours to the border and then back again every day. Yeah, the, there wasn't any hotels available um, at the border because of all the activity and volunteers and, and refugees using them. So um, we stayed about an hour and a half away, which, which was a little long after the third or fourth day of driving, but that's what we did. Okay, so your boot's on the ground now. And uh, I, I got a feeling you travel like I do. The be- best thing to do is find, find a hub, which you did, this four-star hotel, find a hub, but then immerse yourself in the culture. And I, I bet you did the same thing. Tell me what the temper, tone, tenor of Poland was like dealing with these refugees. So I'm, I'm not an expert on, on the Polish culture, but I will say that um, they were a little icy. Um, I think a lot of Americans and other folks had been there. I think by now they were a little annoyed. It's not common that there have that many foreigners, uh, especially Americans, around. So uh, I learned basically to say hello and not much more and then wait to see if they would uh, respond and engage. So um, that was my friend, however, Caesar is extremely outgoing. I'm not sure he ever did that, but that was my take. I just kind of waited. And then if they were accepting or or thought I wasn't trying to be a loud American, um, met some good people and, and, uh, and had some good beers at the end with everybody. And we all cried and hugged and before I came home. So it was, it was an amazing experience. Well, I, I definitely can see that because I've traveled through Europe and I know what loud Americans look like and the impact it has on the culture. But where I was heading toward with my question, though, Christian, is are, you're at the border, you're meeting these, you know, the classic, you know, the classic thing you open up with, the, the women have just walked tens of, if not hundreds of miles uh, to safety with their children and um, and their families, what was it like first uh, for the Polish people to be dealing with this influx? Did you get a sense of that? I would say that um, at the checkpoint that we were at, there's about 300 meters of makeshift tents and then buses. It's not very well organized. Um, you know, the Red Cross was there, UNICEF, UN, didn't really see them doing much. Um, but so basically it's people who, the kids were amazing. 90% of the kids were smiling. The dogs that were there thought it was an adventure. Um, the, the toughest ones were, um, some stories of people sleeping in the woods for five days, coming in shivering without jackets, without food, without clothes that happened, um, on a few occasions that was tough. Um, the old ladies were just amazing, tough as nails. The Ukrainians in general, are extremely resolute. They don't, if there's things to take, they wouldn't take any more than they needed for that day. Like oranges, they take one. So um, they were, they were just absolutely amazing. I didn't see a lot of people smiling until we, you know, bought some things that were hopefully fun, but it's, their resoluteness was, was amazing. And to be honest, 40% in the afternoon, 40% of the people were actually going back. So a lot of people, because the wars moved, um, to the other border, um, I'd say some days it was almost 50%. We saw people actually going back into country, and we give them food and, and uh, water and things like that for the trip. You know, the, um, there just seems, and I know nothing because I only listen to the media, so I have no idea what to believe and what not to, but you get a sense that the Ukrainians 
are truly loving their country. Um, I know uh, Putin uh, originally expressed there is no such country, it's a myth, but you get this incredible passion coming through the media. You got that as well? Yeah, that evil man is wrong. So um, that is 100% true. And not that we had a lot of conversations, it was more facial expressions. And they had a, uh, the Israelis were there in force. They were absolutely stunning. I mean, they, they were actually working every day, they were translating for us, and um, they had their own group. And so we got to have some conversations through translators, and that is absolutely true, Ron. They, they have a country, they're extremely proud of it, and uh, if anyone says anything different, including Putin, he's absolutely wrong. Yeah. So um, you're used to taking ideas and manifesting them in powerful ways through your entrepreneurial experiences, which we'll try to get to before the conversation ends. Uh, just to get an idea so people can understand uh, and balance your personal with your professional life. But is the idea of Ukrainian nation sustainable and viable in this global condition we're in? Yeah, I, I, don't, I try not to overstate things I'm not overly educated about. I mean, what I did was serve food and bought Cokes and M&M's, so I, I don't know that I'm an expert. I, I do know I read every day and about the war and you know, coming from working with the military for 25 years and listening to what the experts that are actually serving tell me, I, um, they're not going to stop. Ukrainians, in my mind, are not going to stop until they're out of their country. But again, I'm not a national security expert, so that's probably all I, all I know about that. Well, sometimes boots on the ground are the most important intel. You know that. So uh, the, the army, you know, the soldiers going in and out there, they were proud. They were motivated. They range in age from, you know, 18-year-old kids to 55-year-old men in uniform, you know, coming in to get trained and then, you know, going back into country. So I, I just know and what I read and what I saw, they are, they're absolutely resolute that uh, the evil man is going to have to stop someday and get out of his country, get out of their country. Yep. We're going to put a link in our blog to the site where people can donate uh, to uh, the cause here of World Central Kitchen. And all of you heard today that it's much bigger than just Ukraine. Uh, it has a purpose and vision that's that's pretty global. Um, but there's a great picture of you at, at seemingly at a booth on the Ukrainian border uh, with a line of uh, 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 soft drinks and other food staples. Tell me about that setup there and what led to it. Well, my friend Susan and I are kind of individuals and, you know, entrepreneurs in this case, it's a business conversation, but so we, we would have been happy uh, to serve and make sandwiches in the kitchen, which is about 20 minutes away for 12 hours a day, we would have done it, but we were able to talk our way into the, um, the checkpoint. That's actually the busiest checkpoint. And then we got there, there was an empty tent right at the, the gate where people come in. So we kind of just took it over and, um, you know, I don't want to say Americanized it, but I wanted to see people's smiles. I said, Ron, Monday we served food. We had the staples, um, sandwiches and water and fruit, but nobody, nobody was smiling. So I said to Caesar, let's just stop tomorrow and buy Coca-Cola and Red Bulls and, and, and fun stuff, toys for these poor kids that they can carry, um, you know, water guns. We were just buying anything they had. And then we set up the booth and we saw more people smiling the rest of the week than, than I think, you know, what we saw all Monday, it just, it wasn't happening. So we were known as the Red Bull 
Coca-Cola, peanut M&M booth that everyone came to find. So, and we tried to make some fun. You know, we were kidding around with the people the best we could and tried to lighten it up a little bit, which, you know, worked in some circumstances. And the goal was just to make people smile um, for a few minutes. That's, they hadn't done that in a while, and that's what we tried to do. Um, there was a great anecdote as I was following you where you put out a message to your 18,000 followers saying, we're trying to make them smile. Coke appears to make them smile. Does anyone know uh, a source of uh, Coca-Cola that can get to our front lines here so we can make people smile? And I remember that. What happened after you appealed to the, to the people? It was amazing, you know, with your help and, and some other uh, folks on LinkedIn that sent me contacts, I um, was pretty emotional about it, but I sent um, some pretty emotional emails to the heads of the Hellenic Group, which is, I think, an $8 billion uh, distribution group that handles that area. They were absolutely stunning. The, the guy who I emailed, I think, is like more of a PR guy. He was on vacation. Um, he immediately got me in touch with the operations people in Poland, and they were, and part of the reason I'm going back is there's not a lot of logistics at the border. It's pretty disorganized. It's an understatement. So we're going to receive um, things like Coke and some other companies that I contacted and, um, and, and either warehouse them for a little while or distribute them while we're there. So I, I can't say enough about Coca-Cola um, in, in uh, I think it's Hellenic, it's called, and they were absolutely fantastic. And I, I want to thank them on this podcast. So are you going to repeat the same, um, the same schedule, if you will, you did on your first trip uh, starting? Tomorrow? Yes. Yep. What we know now, too, is, you know, we're bringing some the people on LinkedIn and I don't have a lot of Facebook. I don't do a lot of Facebook, but I posted something. So we've raised quite a bit of money and um, I've sent about half over to some of the um, people who are just, you know, have been there. I appreciate the recognition of going, but, you know, Seven days twice is nothing compared to the people who've literally been there seven days a week in the cold and rain and snow and the mud uh, since February. And there's a couple of people that I just was absolutely in admiration of. And so we're able to kind of send them uh, money for things like diapers, um, wipes, you know, pacifiers, things. There's women coming across the borders to have babies. And there's really no, there's no infrastructure to help them. So there's just some absolutely amazing people. And this trip, um, we kind of know a little bit more what's going on. So... We're going to bring some cash over. There's folks who need hotel rooms that are waiting for visas. Um, you know, you have to be careful uh, when you have money, but we have third parties now that can hand them the money, so I don't actually do it. And so I, the bottom line is we're going to go over, and I think I have a little bit better plan, and what I'm trying to do is make it more sustainable that I can find the right people to send money to when I'm not there to help out. So you just, again, we're, we're listening to an entrepreneur talking about what works, you know, just do it then iterate over time till you get it right. Uh, Christian's in the middle of that. We're going to put a link to his GoFundMe site. Every dollar I'm hearing, Christian, and you're going to verify it, every dollar goes directly to what he's talking about. He's financing his own trip over there. Is that correct? Yeah, no, we, I would never take any of the money for anything to do with many expenses I personally have. It's all going to go to things uh, like we talked about, hotel rooms, baby wipes, Coca-Cola, that, that, that's going to go to that. And if people feel more comfortable donating directly to World Central Kitchen, that's obviously fantastic as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Christian, just to create a little bit of context, because uh, I keep referring back to your entrepreneurial nature, you've been so successful. You've You've uh, launched a number of different companies, shooter detection systems. Uh, 
you ran for about seven, eight years before selling it to Alarm.com. You're currently CEO of Milcom Security Solutions. You're a board member of Fusis. Um, how does something like this, and, and, and tell me if I'm wrong in creating this connection, but how does something like this inform and infuse how you lead people and your investments? Everything I've invested in, you know, it was military for years. Ethercom's a company I've been involved with for 18 years. It's a couple of Marines had an idea how to stop roadside bombs and instead of waiting for the Raytheons, although I don't want to speak too badly on the good to me. And the Lockheeds and Boeings, we just financed our houses at 28 years old and started up Ethercom and just started making stuff. So um, I, I kind of... When I when I left um, Alarm.com, I have been working full time, and I, I miss having a passion. I don't know if my wife would let me go start up another company, but um, I miss that passion. And and coming back from it, I'm motivated to to do something systemic. We're setting up a foundation now, so it's tax deductible if people want to help. And um, yeah, I kind of missed having that. Infusus has done amazing things in a short period of time. The, the Chris Linnendow there has just done an amazing job. As CEO, but as a board member, you know, you're not in the trenches where I used to be and, and kind of where I like. So this is somewhat emotionally replaced that void I've had, I guess. You're not someone who can get up every day and play golf, I guess. I don't play golf. <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, you know, people have heard me on this broadcast say many times, I'm quoting an American philosopher from the uh, 1800s. Most people live lives of quiet desperation. And uh, I've always attributed that to they don't find something to believe in, to be intentional, purposeful. They don't have a mission that, uh, that, that basically reverberates throughout their life. And, and the very fact that you said, I miss having a passion, I can't imagine you without a passion. Do you think this is going to be a long going effort with you and world uh the world uh central kitchen yeah i hope so we're planning on uh, caesar and i um doing some of the locations and, and involving my wife wants to go she's been volunteering she's a prosecutor um before she she left the office and she's been doing amazing work locally for years and now i have some time to to volunteer locally so um yeah no i think i think in general the mission that they have and the fact that they just um i don't use any swear words they don't put up with anything they just go and do things um i'm not much of a rule follower so those kind of organizations they tend to gravitate towards well i gotta tell you this has been a great conversation with you christian connors uh i uh, pray for you and wish the best on your next trip i hope you touch people in powerful ways and more importantly they touch you and you bring that back to us in the united states christian it's been a great conversation I always enjoy speaking with you, Ron. Thanks for the uh, allowing me to be on.